before I get started and before I, I play anything uh, on this episode, I want to give out a shout out to my good friend Alex Torres. He did the introduction music, uh, known him for years. He's a kick-ass artist. He's performed in many great places. Uh, he's a dear friend. I respect him a lot, and I want to thank him uh, with this shout-out for doing the introduction for the Ride Boundless podcast. I have put it on credits on the site, but I know many people don't go to the site, so I, I thought this would be the, the best way to give my thanks to Alex Torres. Thank you, brother. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Ride Boundless podcast brought to you by Ride Clean. Ride Clean is an ultra premium polish, shine, wax, and cleaner. Very simple to use. Simply shake, spray, and wipe anywhere on your motorcycle. Just about anywhere. Don't spray it where you shouldn't spray it. And wipe it off and you'll get a cool, clean, mirror-like shine. Uh, it won't disappoint. You can use it on your rims, helmet, glasses, so much more. Check them out at rideclean.com. CO use promo code RB podcast for 15% off as well as free shipping right now. That's rideclean.co. My guest is, uh, is an account that I've been following, um, not too long, but I, I saw it. And as I looked through it, I, I really liked their account and got really interested. And it, it didn't take me much before reaching out to them and, and to get them on, uh, they're a shop in Eagle rock. Uh, they go by motor Republic I reached out, spoke to Jeff, and their Instagram and what they post is awesome, but what they're doing is is amazing. Great for the motorcycle community, the biker community, people that are new, people that are experienced, people that want to, you know, or I don't want to give away too much, but what Jeff has come up with is, is outstanding, and it's a very exciting episode with um, a lot of good information. Uh, for any but any level of rider, uh, especially if you're out here in LA. So we'll get started with my guest, Jeff King from Moto Republic out on Eagle Rock. Here we go. One, Mr. Jeff King, thank you for being here. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. No, well, actually, thanks for having me because your place here is lovely. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you had this place now? Uh, we're going into our sixth year. We started in the tail end of 2015. That's amazing. Congratulations thank on that. Thank you. How, how are you dealing with the whole COVID thing? COVID is so strange. I'm doing, we're doing fine. Uh, I worry more for other businesses. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it, but... Uh, Motorcycling is still going strong. People still ride bikes and want them fixed. I, I, I think uh, just about every motorcycle shop's open right now, right? Yeah, I, I think there was there were some closures uh, due to COVID, and some dealerships went down. That was very early. Yeah. I think they were maybe on their last legs as it was, and COVID was the last straw. But otherwise, we're actually all going strong. I feel a little bit bad about it. Yeah, but we're actually we're we're doing we're doing okay. Yeah, there, there is some good things. Uh, I mean, there's terrifying things about the whole COVID, how many businesses go out of business, uh, you know, people not be able to work, people not be able to pay their bills. But there is also some shops, you know, growing and, 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 and flourishing, as well as there's some benefits where people are actually spending more time with their families and spending more time with their kids. Um, I, so it's, it's weird. It's like good and bad, you know, but 
but it has to stop, I think. Well, uh, we all hope it will. For me, you're either going to think that COVID's going to end the world or it's not going to end the world. And so as scary as it is, and it's pretty darn scary to uh, start a business, maintain a business, but you got to keep pushing because otherwise you're planning for failure. So I'm continuing to develop, to develop the business, invest in it. feels a little crazy while I'm doing it because we don't know what next June will be like. Right. You know, but uh, that's what you got to do. Right. Yeah, the, the scary part for me is that now we're entering flu season and, um, you know, that's going to bring up more COVID cases. Shouldn't we be all set for flu season? We're all wearing masks already. We, we should. We should. I'm thinking, but, I'm thinking we're going to kill it. Yeah. I, I hope so, but but I'm afraid that um, I'm afraid they're going to use this as a as a tactic, and then not to get too much into this COVID yeah. thing. But I'm afraid this is going to be you know it's it, it's those false numbers that if somebody has the flu, they're going to report it as COVID, so they can benefit from it. And you know, I I just hate seeing these businesses struggle as much as they are. Oh, it's just unprecedented. One hundred. No one on the planet Earth would have thought we'd been dealing with something like this. No, not even in January. If, if in January, you know, I was to tell you, hey, in, in 10 months, the world's going to go to shit. Yeah. You know, you'd be like, get the fuck out of here. You'll be wearing a surgical mask yeah. for all of all 2020. Of us. And it's so strange because it's <laughs> everywhere. It, it, it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, 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 Again, I love your establishment. I love what you've done with the place. Before we get into the details mm-hmm. of how you opened it and the entrepreneurship, how did you get into motorcycles and what's kind of your, your motorcycle background so and career-wise? I got into it completely uh, late in my life, in my early 20s. And what happened was I was going to college in Boston. Uh, I went to uh, Berkeley College of Music. In my former life, I was a musician. And uh, I saw a 1971 BMW R75. Uh, I remember the paint. I had to look up the paint. It's called Metallic Curry. And it was parked metallic curry. Metallic curry that yeah. sounds really cool, really ugly. That's like a <laughs> like a like a deep sparkly orange. Nice. And uh, you know, it like had a blood orange almost, like a sparkling blood orange. Uh, no, like a KTM orange with sparkle in it. Nice. Yeah. Okay. But it it had patina. You know, this was a real riding bike, and it was it was locked to a bicycle rack in front of one of the buildings in the campus. And I that I remember that's the first moment I said I like that. And then I was riding within six months, within six months of seeing that bike. But previously, nothing had occurred to me ever. Ever. So no, no background with the parents and the father wasn't a rider, best friends, no, no dirt I'm, bikes. I'm really jealous of the West Coast culture that's out here. Yeah. Because there's none of that where I grew up. Uh, there's but, no ATVing. There's no dirt biking. Uh, you know, out here, I'm jealous. It's a family activity. Yeah. And, and people have been riding since they're six years old. They got... 16 years on me. Yeah, yeah, bastards. <laughs> yeah, because you said uh, you got into it late in your early 20s, and I'm like, well, that's not too bad. But you're right that, you know, there's people that grew up with it. Yeah. You know, Mojave Desert. But it, it also depends on the families and, and who has access to it. I, I got lucky with, uh, you know, my family didn't do it. But a good friend of mine, their family grew up in the desert. And uh, they took me they took me out, you know, when I was about 15, 16 years old. And that's how I got into it and never stopped ever since. Yeah. And I, 99% of my experience has been street and, uh, to street guys, dirt and desert. It's terrifying. Yeah. And I'm just doing it now, now that I'm in my fifties. Uh, so, uh, you know, I have that fear quotient in there. And of course now I'm driving big giant motorcycles that a 50 year old can afford as opposed to what should be there, which is just a, 
20 year old dirt bike kickstart <laughs> yeah what 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 do you ride right now uh i have a lot of vintage bikes but right now i'm riding uh a, a adventure bike a ktm super enduro nice it, it's a uh they only made a couple thousand of them it's kind of a, it's a revered model uh only because of its excess of power and and uh and it's being lighter than a lot of other adventure bikes at the time nice it, it actually didn't do too well commercially but but uh, uh, it's a blast to ride. Smiles for miles. Yeah, the, these adventure bikes. I actually just bought a, uh, a 2020 uh, GSA BMW. Fantastic. And I, I just went fucking crazy with it. I, I powder coated, painted, you know, customized lights. I, I just went cra- I went too crazy to the point where people in the community are saying, what the fuck are you doing? It's an adventure bike. Leave it alone. Ride it, crash it, you know, and stop customizing. I'm oh, like, no, I'm. No, you're, you're not going to crash that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I did a few times already. I took it to uh, Gorman. Oh, and uh, I had I have a hundred percent street tires, and you know that there's a soft sand. I so I, I ate it a few times. Yeah, but uh, but I had the uh, Lone Rider bags on it, the mm-hmm. soft bags, so it it really helped, you know cushioning those those drops for the bike did you have buddies along or were you going yourself no no i had a few people at okay the time. good because you need to make friends to help you pick up that bike yeah no i picked it up most of the time by myself i had no problem with it you know typical you know back i dropped it i dropped it that day three times three times which was ridiculous and, and uh one of the times we actually had a gopro facing me and it's just funny the way i, I, I you know flew off it but the point is these adventure bikes are are pretty amazing oh yeah i, I like it so then you got your first motorcycle, and then uh, and then what happened? You just decided to get a career in there, or you were doing? No, I was a musician, and uh, what, what kind of musician? Well, Where'd you play? I was a guitar player, one of one million guitar players at Berkeley, and um, Berkeley's awesome. Is that what brought you to the West Coast? So this is Berkeley College of Music in Boston, ah. not Berkeley in the Bay Area. Yeah, so to clarify, Ber- that. Berkeley with the two E's. Well. On job interviews, depending on the job, if they thought it was Berkeley up here in Bay Area, <laughs> I let them. I let them have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it was a music school, and um, I was passionate about music. I still am. And by a fluke, I was not. I didn't get into the program I wanted to get into, which was uh, uh, the recording program, because I wanted to be an audio engineer. And by a fluke, they wouldn't let me in it. And I took like a second choice and the second choice was called music synthesis. And yep, that means nothing. Uh, so I basically, I have a degree in programming old synthesizers like Emerson Lake and Palmer type synthesizers with the, with the patch chords and everything. No, I'm not familiar with that. That's right. And that's why I'm not doing it anymore. It's not that much, <laughs> I'm like, there's the, not that much work the, in it. The gestures with the hand had me even more confused. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, it was, it was, the idea was sound design for film. Right. So how do you take electricity and make it into design it and manipulate it to make the sound you want, whether it be a digital piano or a horror scream or something like that. It was sound design. Right. And it would let you segue into film or whatever you want to do. But at the time, again, it was just good good timing uh there was something called uh sound sound tools and uh sound designer it was called and it ran on a little mac remember those little macs that are the all-in-one the all-in-one with a little six inch screen with a floppy disk with a floppy disk right and what you could do is you could design a sound in there and it would last like six seconds long because this is the early 90s you know right yeah those things were like 
four gigs or eight gig. No, not even that. They weren't gigs. My they weren't friend. gigs. Yeah, they yeah. were. They were other things, smaller than gigs. Whatever were, those things are. Yeah, I forgot what they it were, was, but they yeah, were was, K's. They were K's. <laughs> they were small. Yeah. So uh, eight bits or something. <laughs> oh yeah, it was definitely eight bit. So the the irony of it is that the recording program thought, oh, this thing makes sounds. We don't want anything to do with it. We're tape. We're analog. And so I left. I left with a useless degree. But, oh, my gosh, I knew how to record audio onto a hard drive. No one knew that this was coming. Absolutely. And uh, what, what, and I apologize, but what year was this? This is late 80s, early 90s. Okay. And so I would say that anybody who went through the recording program never worked a day in their life because they didn't know how to use these new systems, and I was instantly in it. Right. Um, I spent the first year of my life, life turning around curse words on hip hop records in New York City. Is that, that that's where it took you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's it's an in. I mean, you're, right? Yeah, it's yeah, an but in. of course, yeah. And back then, especially hip hop, that, that was like when hip hop was really taking off. Yeah, yeah, that was that was hip hop at its at its prime. Yeah, absolutely. Both artistically and yeah, absolutely. well, at least artistically. So, I mean, that led to a 15-year career in music, and I did about eight of it on the East Coast, and then I worked with everybody's enemies on the West Coast. So I did both sides. Yeah, uh, that's funny. Yeah, it is kind of funny. So, yeah, yeah, you were both sides. Yeah. Fuck East Coast. Fuck West Coast. Ah, yeah. Whatever. Just pay me, guys. <laughs> yeah. High five. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then you, you got into the East Coast, and then... Uh, well, then... Did, I, you, did you do a lot of riding in New York, like motorcycle riding? I was a commuter, man. You I was a commuter. A commuter. So I, at the time, I was staying with my folks in upstate New York, and I'd just drive an hour and 15 minutes into New York City. Uh, back then, you could park on the sidewalk. You just put a cover over the bike, and then I would work for three-day street, and then I would ride back up. Um, so just commuting. I remember riding in the winter on the, uh, on the turnpike and just every 20 minutes pulling over and holding my exhaust to try to get my hands to thaw yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, good times. You do that in your 20s. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Actually, we were doing that. Uh, we, we did an Angeles Crest ride yeah. last year in the, in the winter. It was just buried in snow, cold wind, and, and we were all just putting our hands, gloves on, and just kind of grabbing your motor and exhaust because it gets so cold. But I can't imagine that in New York. Well, yeah. Because here is just when you get up there. Once you get down, it's back to normal. Oh, yeah, and it's plus it's 50. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, you know, it gets 49. Come on. Oh, okay. Come on, Jeff. It gets 48. Says the guy with heated grips on his That's GS. On his GS, that's right. And gloves. And then one of my other buddies wears the heated vest bastard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's typical. Yeah. But, but how would you compare riding on the East Coast versus West Coast? Well, um, West Coast is a whole new thing. And uh, I couldn't stand to be in a car for like a nanosecond around here yeah. with all the traffic. So... I lose my mind. Motorcycling's appeal to me is the immediate gratification of getting through an intersection, passing right. cars. And I'm not talking maliciously. I'm just saying politely, uh, uh, with skill, not alarming anybody, but getting ahead of the line. I mean, there's like a thrill of that. Absolutely. And uh, plus, you're helping the city move. Yeah. You're helping it move. I imagine if you were in another car. Yeah, or a truck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it takes up too much space. You're, you're, I mean, it, it's... I, I can't do it. I really can't do it. And if I'm only bringing equipment like today, mm -hmm. all, all this is the exception. But I've had this truck for, you know, almost three years. I, I got 20,000 miles on it. 
you know. And oh, then, that's amazing. Yeah, and then I just have, I just bought the Harley and the BMW within this year. I just paid my registration. I have almost uh, seven, 7,000 on the uh, BMW, and I have 3,000 on the Harley. So I, I, I have to ride everywhere. I, I can't take it. Something about when I, when I ride through traffic or when I ride through the city, I'm, I'm calm. I'm relaxed. I, oh, I it's, know, it's Zen once you, it, it's Zen going through traffic. I, I love, I love driving through traffic. That's another thing. I love splitting lanes. I love driving. I would rather split through traffic in downtown LA than just have an empty road and, and going as fast as I want. And that's the honest truth, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I've spent, uh, I probably did 14,000 miles a year commuting before I opened up the shop, which is a half mile from my house, which is a lot less than 14,000 miles a year. Uh, and uh, there'd be days I don't remember getting home. And I'd, I'd be on the 105 and the 110. Yeah. You know, you know, there were a couple moments there and you have to focus the whole time. Yeah. So it's an interesting, a blend of absolute focus, confidence, and also being in a state of thought where, I mean, that's where I worked out issues. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But there's something about... I don't know. Somebody told me that like some people like New York because their mind is so busy and fast paced that once they get to New York, it's kind of like settling like, ah, like I feel, you know, I feel relaxed here. Mm -hmm. And that that's kind of how I explain, you know, me. Sometimes I'm just super hyper and I'm just super active. And there's something about when I get on the motorcycle, it's just like for me, it's like a ballet. I'm dancing, I'm yeah, cruising, I'm going. And I, I always got to get to the front. I don't like. You know, if I pass a car, I'm passing the car. I don't like cars tailgating me. I don't like cars near me. So I, I, I avoid everybody as fast as I can, as much as I can. I, again, there's a zen and something relaxing to it. You know, there's a, for me, there's a, like a PR element of lane splitting as well. So what I'll do, and I'm just, I'm crazy. But, you know, I think we're all ambassadors for the sport while we're out, while we're out there. Yeah. And I got to imagine half the people in the car are thinking, those dicks passing us. You know, oh, 100%. Of course. But, you know, they have the choice. They could accept a little bit more danger and have the same result. Um, but they decided not to. So that's their decision. And I'm doing everything politely and deliberate. And one of my, my little, like, PR tricks is to, uh, I don't go to the front of the line. I go one car back. No, I go to the front. Yeah, I go. I, 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 go want, one, I want everybody to see me. I go, I go one, one to the back. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, he's a dick, but he's not a total dick. Yeah. No, they, they, they think, they think what a fucking dick. And, and the car you're leaving ahead of you is thinking this motherfucker staying behind me. So he can just pass me up. And I got to worry about when he's going to pass me up. Cause I know he's going to pass me up. I, I go straight to the front of the line. I, I, I don't even care. Even, even if it's a cop, I, I don't care. I'll get right in front of them. I, I got, I got five and a half inch, 20,000 loom lights, you know, oh. fucking on, on the, I mean, I go, crazy lighting is the best that's yeah. it's about visibility yeah oh, what lighting do you use uh it just i make sure that i have a really strong headlight and then spotlights make yourself into some sort of triangle or a square yeah, yeah you know these things are crazy bright you don't have to have them pointed on the road how many lumens oh i don't count my lumens uh, you don't count your lumens you don't no. know how big your lumens are no <laughs> no well you carry everything in your shop which we'll get into the shop but i want to go more with uh, your motorcycle so now sure. you're west coast uh, you like riding more on the West Coast than the East Coast? Oh, well, I moved to the West Coast for only one reason. Uh, that would be the uh, blizzard of, my gosh, now I'm not going to remember it. It's probably like the blizzard of uh, 1993. And uh, this happened on the East Coast, and I was 
not motorcycling, but on a train into New York. And I don't know if you've ever taken the Metro Rail into New York Never. from upstate New York. It's beautiful. You're on a train next to the Hudson River. It's great, you know. And then when it snows, everything's white. And that's, that's it's great. You know, it's Christmas, winterland, right. right? And then as you get toward the Bronx, you start going underground. And then you start to see kind of like hobos, uh, 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 crouch around fire, uh, barrels on fire, warming their hands. And then now you're in the CD underbelly of uh, New York City, and now it's like a subway train. And you get out of Grand Central Station, and you walk out on the street, and all the snow is gray and brown. And black. And black from all the exhaust. And I remember, I think it was Blizzard of 93, I said, it does not snow in California. I never thought about California in my life. And I was there within two years. So I'm here for the, uh, the weather and the fact that you can ride all year round. Yeah. Well, 11 to 12 months a year only. Well, if you're used to riding in the snow, you can do 12. <laughs> you can do 12 months. You yeah. could do the one week that it, uh, it gets yeah. cold. Yeah. You're right. It does rain yeah. twice. Twice. Literally twice. <laughs> uh, and you can find everything. I, I keep telling people this. You can find everything. Everything's two hours away. Max in, in 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 California. If you want desert, two hours away. If you want snow, oh yeah, two hours away. If you want beach, whatever. I, I don't care where you're at in California. You're two hours away from anything that you want. Well, it's also the mecca for motorcycle culture. Yeah, and parts. Anything you want is two hours away. Like you said, yeah. uh, uh, before all this uh, carb and EPA stuff, you wanted an exhaust. It was two hours away. Right. You know. Or you can get someone to custom make you something. All the cool gear was coming out of here. Parts. It was just, it was motorcycle. West habit. Coast Choppers, Jesse James. Yeah, and, yeah everything. Every, all the customizations. The, the biker community is, is so big out here that I just tell people this. California is the only state that you have lane splitting because of the biker community voting on that. That's huge. Yeah. And, and uh, I think, honestly, the city would be gridlocked if we didn't do that. Yeah. It's a necessity. It's definitely a necessity. Yeah. And I think even the, the CHP is like, fuck, yeah, you have to let people lane split because it, it's ridiculous. I, I think I think it's the only thing that everybody agrees with, you know. I've been to uh, Nevada. I've been to Arizona where you can't lane split. Oh, it's got to be murder. People are dicks. No, it, one, it's murder. Two, people are dicks. You know, they think they're the law and they'll see you lane splitting. They'll try to, you know, stop you. You know, and they'll be like, you can't lane split, and they'll honk at you. I was riding one time from Vegas, and, um, oh, actually, Dieter. Do you remember Dieter from Eagle sure, Riders? Sure, So we, we, I went to a, an event over there in Vegas where all the dealers, and, you know, they were doing this whole show and blah, blah, blah. And Dieter and I, we went for a ride with everybody. On the way, um, on the way out, um, we rode for probably four or five hours with a bunch of stops, mm -hmm. and then we said, you know what, it's Sunday. Let's get the fuck out of here. We have to ride back to L.A., so we started riding back to L.A., and it was Sunday. So traffic, you know, the, you never leave Vegas on Sunday, you know, because it's in well, a car. Well, because, because everybody leaves Vegas on Sunday. Because everybody. And in, in a car, for those that don't know, it's usually about a seven-hour drive mm -hmm. with traffic where it should be about three hours and 45 minutes, three yeah. hour, four hours max. So we're, we're, we're leaving. We've been riding all day. Now we're leaving. It starts raining. Okay, so now it's traffic. It's <laughs> pouring on us. And I tell Dieter, hey, I'm splitting lanes. He's like, let's go. Let's split lanes. And oh, next, on the Nevada side? On the Nevada side. Next thing you know, I would lose Dieter. I would I would look in my mirrors and, and like, you know, every single car that I just passed would just block off oh, Dieter well. and they wouldn't allow him. And he had to, you know, zigzag through this. So we dealt with this until we got out of the Nevada side. 
anyways, when we get to the California side, we're still dealing with traffic. We're getting poured on. Anyways, it took us probably about five hours, Ugh. even on motorcycles. Yeah. But we were getting drenched. The point is, when you go when you're in a state that doesn't allow lane splitting, they're just shitholes. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> hey, just... I would say, wouldn't all those people be Californians on the Nevada side heading to Los Angeles on a Sunday night? Most of them. Yeah. Most of them. But but you still see a lot of Nevada plates. You you got the the people you know switching and you know living here or living there. But there was a lot of people blocking us, and the only people that I ever see blocking the people are are, are usually the Nevada. So what do you think? about the drivers who suddenly pull over three feet to the left. Three pull, feet to the left while you're lane speeding them. The, the car, so you're saying like a, the, one, the yeah. one's on the number three lane and just switch three lanes. No, I experience a lot of I'm lane splitting between the fast and the third lane or whatever it is, the next fastest lane where you're kind of supposed to do it. Right, and then and you could speak closer to the okay, mic. Okay, yeah, um, and then the car will just shoot three feet to the left. It's like they suddenly saw you and they're either in courtesy or fear. Right. Making that movement three okay. feet to the left, which neither of those I want. Right. I'm not going to pass unless I have room to do it safely. Right. And no one likes a sudden movement. It puts everybody on alert. Right. Do you think they're doing it out of courtesy or fear? Um, I think they're doing it out of courtesy. Yeah, that would be great. I, I think they got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a loved who one rides. or parents who yeah. rides and they see it and they, they move the fuck out of the way. And usually I would take that opportunity and move. Because, oh, you have to go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'll, it'll take me, you know, one second max to pass them up. So when I see those, mm-hmm. even, even, for example, yesterday I was riding from downtown and, you know, I was, I was splitting lanes by the number one and number two lane. And as I'm splitting lanes, this Prius just puts on his, you know, turn signal to, to, you know, switch lanes. And I'm maybe two seconds away. When I, when I see that, you know what I do? I go to the left of the Prius and pass him from the left side. Cause I don't know if he saw me or didn't see me. I don't want to stick around. I don't want to wait. So I, (laughs) I just instantly go around them on the left side, you know? And like, you you know, sometimes I'll flash them. Sometimes I'll, I'll do the lane splitting. Mm -hmm. I'll get behind them, flash, and then I'll pass them on the left. But I don't like floating around cars that I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Oh, yeah. If they're feared or not feared, if they saw me or didn't see me, I try to get past them immediately. Well, I just assume everybody has a phone in their hand, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, we've been through those moments where you see a car just driving so shitty or so stupid. And, and a part of us gets mad because, you know, they're putting our life at risk. They're putting other cars at risk. But, you know. You don't know what the fuck happened in their life. You don't know if their, you know, the wife was cheating on him or, you know, something happened to their kids or, you know, they lost a family. Like, you don't know what the fuck's going on. So I, I just, I used to get really upset and I used to be the guy that kicked doors and <laughs> bang windows and break, you know, mirrors. Now I just avoid it so fucking, you know, oh. I just avoid it so much. I don't know if I'm getting to that no, older age. No, it's, yeah, you are. I mean, I, what I like to do, I want the knuckleheads to do what the knuckleheads are going to do. As long as they're not doing it next to me. Yeah. So when I see weird stuff, I usually backpedal a little bit and say, let's see how this plays out. At least I'm paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I'll backpedal very little, but then I'll just fucking operate to just get away from it. You know, (laughs) it's probably a wise move. Yeah. Like I, 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 a truck kind of went into the swerved into the middle of the lane splitting. I was like, fuck you. I went far right. I went far right. Like two lanes went around them, came back in. Because I don't know if they're trying to be dicks. I don't know if they're not paying attention. I don't know if they're just, you know, 
they're just pieces of shit. I, I don't know what people are doing. So I just avoid it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, far, I'm, far and fast, uh, not fast, but aggressively. And, and I'm very, you know, paying attention. Yeah. I'm very, well, and let me tell you what I think would be the final judge of your techniques or my techniques. What, whatever differences they are is longevity. Right. If, if you're not having any issues, then you're probably doing the right thing. Right. Because we all know people who have issues. Right. Right. The, uh, I read somewhere that the average lifespan of a motorcyclist in L.A. is like nine months. Really? Before they get into an accident. So I've been riding here for I six I never heard that statistic. Yeah. Well, maybe I just made it up. But I tell you, did, I thought I heard it. Did you know 68.345 of statistics are made up? <laughs> uh, not only are they made up 64% of the time, but 100% of the time, that 64% is completely made up. It's completely. Yeah. But I think it was at 19.6. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. Like, like, uh, like uh, well, you're familiar. Well, are you familiar with the Nielsen reports? Sure. You know, that does the radio, the ratings what for TVs TV. and stuff. Well, but you have to explain to me what TV is. Oh, TV is this uh, big giant box that has radiation and it has these knobs that change. No, but uh, the Nielsen reports, what people don't understand about that is, um, and for those that don't understand it, it, it rates what programs people are watching and sure, shows. Sure, families and have, they pick families and they have boxes that record their channel surfing. Right. Right, and they and they do this based for ratings. Yeah, but the thing what people don't understand those statistics that they pull up from that is if they get like a place like L.A. five million, ten million, whatever it is, they only get a hundred people to represent the million, and they get the study of the hundred people, and based on what they watch, sure. they just multiply it. So it's 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 a fucking statistic. So you know? statistics it's, is your point? Yeah, yeah. Statistics is bullshit, is what I mean. Yeah, uh, and I guess my point is I feel like lane splitting is uh, it's evolution. Yeah. Those that will make bad decisions will have bad outcomes. Have you ever ridden in a, in a different country? No, no. No? No. You know what? I've never left the country. And then, you never left the country? Well, Canada, Mexico, they don't count. So you never left the country? I never left the continent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nope. I've always been a worker bee. I always work. So I never really took time to travel. I'll yeah. do that when I'm uh, retired, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in California, it's it's a retired. Have you life. ridden outside the country? Yeah. Oh, where? I've, I've ridden. Uh, I've ridden India. I've ridden in Paris. I've ridden in Mexico. Ah. I've ridden in Colombia. I've ridden. Uh, that's about it. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sure it was heart pounding. No, no, same. Oh same. yeah. It, it's the fir- for me. It's like the first three to five minutes where it's like, oh, watch out, everybody's so fucking crazy yeah. out here, and then once you get into the rhythm, you know, it. it I I think it's like. I'm going to describe it like music, you know, it, it's, it's, you're going to jump into a band once you get that rhythm and you're not first you're like, fuck, or can I keep awkward. up? Yeah. Yeah. And then once you get in, you're like, oh, okay, I see how everybody's operating here. I can, I, I dig this, you know? Perfect. Now, so let's talk about your shop or let's talk about how your, your career of how you got into the motorcycle industry working wise and then how you came up with the idea of opening up the shop and, and all the cool shit going on in your yeah, shop. Yeah. So I, I was just always into motorcycle culture and I was just a gearhead and I learned everything myself. And what I did while I was working in the music business, which is 90% nighttime work, uh, none of it happens during the day, almost none of it. So what I would do is I had an apartment in Echo Park and I had a garage door that opened off to Echo Park Ave right across from the park. And I would just leave the door open and I would wrench in there all day. That's what I would do. I would build bikes in this garage. And through that, I met more and more motorcyclists. I mean, I, I well, think well, real quick, you, 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 
you were working on your motorcycles or you were buying motorcycles, fixing them and selling them? No, I was working on my motorcycles. Okay. I was a, a poor musician, you know. Right. I got to touch million dollar equipment, but I still made what, you know. Right. I, I was lucky to even be paid, you know, that's how the music business is. And so, you know, I was constantly buying $500 motorcycles. I don't think I ever, that was my rule. A motorcycle costs $500. And then I upped it late, years later to a dollar a cc. Wow. Yeah. But bikes at that price point need a little bit of work, not surprisingly. Right. So it was just kind of fun to buy bikes and work on them. And it was just totally passion. But the, the point is, is uh, you know, part of the reason I like motorcycling is that uh, we wave at each other and we have no problem walking up to a stranger at a gas station and saying, nice bike, tell me about it. Yeah. Or I always wanted one of those. Yeah, yeah. You know, because we have something in common. And what would happen is I met, other motorcyclists in LA because I had my garage door open and they saw what I was doing. So I kind of got, got to ride all day. I mean, all my musician and entertainment friends, we had nothing to do all day. We weren't getting paid. Right. Right. So what did we do? We rode all over California. It was, uh, some of the best time of my life. I just riding and riding and exploring and riding. And then four or five nights a week, I'd work in a recording studio till six in the morning sleep till noon, and then work on a bike or ride. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, well, it, it was awesome because I was too young to know that there's a future and, and there's no guilt, and you were just going day by day. It, it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then where, where was the first place you worked at? Uh, well, uh, I, I worked it for, um, you're talking music business? No, no, motorcycle. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, I worked uh, for a company called Eagle Rider. And that I took as a side gig to accompany my music gig. My music gig, this was mid-90s. I think there was a crash, like 95-ish. I can't remember what it was. No, a crash? Two, no, 2008. 2008. Okay. So I was still doing music back then. And there was that big crash. Record budgets slashed. There was just no money to spend. Right. And so now my full-time job had become a part-time. When I say part-time, eight hours a week. I was making great, great money at that time. I went from a recording engineer to a mix engineer, and then I was a mastering engineer. You know, he's the final set of ears. Yeah, so yeah. He's going to listen to a record. He gets paid the big bucks. He gets paid the big bucks. Uh, and so I was there, but then there was only eight hours of work per week. So no matter how much you get paid for eight hours, there's just not enough to go around. So I, I said, well, let me ruin another hobby. Let me get involved in motorcycling. So I took a minimum wage job at a company I'd never heard of, Eagle Rider. Um, and if you haven't heard of them, they are really big internationally, but not so well known Locally. in the United States. They, uh, they're a motorcycle rental company, mostly Harley Davidson's that re they rent. And most of their customers are European. So I'd never heard of them. But when I got there, they had a fleet of like 600 motorcycles. That's pretty darn impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now it's way, way, way more. Oh, they're at five or 6,000. Yeah. Something like well, that. Well, they carry just 5,000 just in L.A. Yeah. And then they're, I think they're at 152 locations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah they're, internationally, they're killing it. So this is, I was, I was kind of lucky for a while. I was part-timing there and part-timing music. And I guess I was dissatisfied with the way the place was running. Uh, and at one point, someone pulled me aside. Well, you got you to gotta decide. Are you here part-time? Are you here full-time? Are you a musician? And so I said, I'm going to come on full-time. And... Uh, and, and, and that's the change. So I finally left music behind. I uh, left at cold turkey. 
I left gear in recording studios. I turned off my cell phone number because I'm still going to get those calls. Right. Right. Hey, I need you at two in the morning. It's going to pay this much. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, we're, 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 we're such a easy suckers, this entrepreneurship of like, why well, make how much at 2 a.m.? I'll be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So I didn't even want to have to say no. Right. So I left it cold turkey. And uh, so I just continued working with this company and, and, and uh, it was an awesome gig. It was crazy hard work because it was a really small company. So everybody had to do everything. Right. But talk about happy product. Right. Because what you were doing is you were taking a plane load of French people, putting them on their dream motorcycles, putting yeah. them on their dream motorcycles, and they would go on a vacation of a lifetime. So you were like delivering awesomeness to them. They were paying a pretty penny to do it, but they were delivering, you were delivering awesomeness. Yeah, but it's an experience that they, they'll never forget, you know. Yeah, and they save up years for these vacations. And, I mean, in, in, in Europe, you just can't throw your leg over Harley-Davidson. Yeah, it doesn't it's very happen. difficult. It doesn't happen. I, yeah. I love, there's a story that Chris McIntyre told me um, that there was this big, giant German guy, you know, that came, you know, they, they, the Germans flew to Chicago. Mm-hmm. They came through the Route 66, which is about two weeks, and there was this big, giant German guy that was just kind of crying, you know, of, of happiness. Yeah, and that he went, did it. And they were like, what's going on? He was like, well, you know, in, in Germany, I have a poster of Elvis Presley on a Harley Davidson, you know, and this was always one of my dreams. Yeah. And to accomplish it, 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 you know, it's so satisfying. Yeah, it was, it was. I mean, fuck, there's people that live in the States that haven't done Route 66. Oh, absolutely. I haven't done Route 66, you know, from Chicago all the way down. Yeah. And then the other thing, you know, for Europeans is the sense of space. Europe is so crowded. Yeah, I know. And like you and I probably could not be paid to drive through Iowa, but the open space to a European, it's just mind blowing. Yeah. Mind blowing and just life changing. Yeah, it's 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 funny because what people don't realize a majority of the United States was built around cars. Oh know? yeah. Like like the the way especially Los Angeles. Los Angeles was built around that's why you. That's why public transportation sucks in LA because the car was already introduced as Cal, as LA was growing, and they built these bigger streets. They built the houses. Everything sure. was separated. Where places like New York or Europe, they the car didn't exist, and that's why the streets are smaller. Yep. That's why it's more compact. That's why they had to figure out a better system for, you know, the public transportation. Sure. Um, and that's why it's so much better in, in those places. But yeah, you're right. When Europeans come and they see how big our fucking roads are, you know, they're, they're very, they're very satisfied. Well, yeah. And then over there traveling, going to another country may only be in a two and a half hour train ride. Right. Yeah. For them. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. for here, I mean, getting through a state is a day. It, it, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny because for us to say California, Texas, Miami, New York, whatever, Cancun, mm-hmm. you know, Canada, you know, over there, it's, you know, Germany, France, you yeah. know, whatever. We're going to we're gonna stop over to Belgium and get some waffles. Yeah, let's get some waffles real quick. Let's take a two-hour train ride. They make the best waffles. Let's go, let's go to Sweden. Let's go skiing real quick. You know, like, like that. that's it's pretty cool, too. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. It's yeah. pretty cool, too. Yeah. You, ever been, you, have, you haven't been to Europe, huh? No, again, I'm a worker. I'm a, I just work. Oh, bro, just sell the fucking place. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just sell the place. Double down. Uh, no, I like to, uh, I would like to conquer and then I'll sell. <laughs> so, so then, so you were at Eagle Riders. Yep. Um, I was at Eagle Rider for nine years. Got some experience there. Well, mind blowing experience. So, I mean, basically my time there allowed me to start a business of my own. 
uh, when, when I got to that company, they were maybe 20 people. Yeah. And when I left, they were in the hundreds and hundreds of employees. So I got to watch a company grow from this awesome idea that was working to this big giant conglomerate, you know, right. and or well, real corporate thing, right. you know, and I got to watch successes in their decisions and really bad decisions. And I got to watch them grow in leaps and bounds and have failures. And, uh, I was involved in a lot of the, uh, I wasn't involved in the decision-making. This was really the, the owners doing all the decision-making, but yeah. I was involved in the problem solving right. of, the, of the decisions. And they really relied on their employees to make things work. Well, they, they had to because the place went from zero action to 45 people walking in all at the same time wanting to do reservations or, you know, fulfilling the reservations. Yeah. So it got hectic. Oh, yeah. yeah I, uh, the, uh, I had someone describe the job. It was a defensive job. You, you couldn't prepare for what was going on. You just dealt with it as it came because yeah. it comes in a bus just drops off 45 people. We're right. excited as hell to get on their bikes. Right. Yeah. Um, so, which one's my bike? Where's my bike? <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And basically I really benefited from that position because they let me, they let, they gave me leeway to make decisions and they trusted me and they continued to give me more and more responsibilities that I was asking for. And I went from, you know, kind of like a porter position to within five years, I was running the place as the GM and I was there for exponential growth for the company. And, uh, this gave me business experience that my co my, uh, Berkeley college of music, uh, education didn't have. Right. Yeah. And you know, I didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial family at all. Right. So my folks were get a good job, save. That was it. Get a good job and save. And, uh, you know, to start a business, you have to be much more aggressive. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially because of the music, what you were doing for music, you were kind of in the background by yourself or, you know, with a little small team. Now you're out front and dealing with, you know, hundreds of different personalities. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I was already a risk taker because, uh, trying to make it in the music business is a hundred percent risk. Yeah. Uh, so I had a little bit of that in me and then I was really just lucky to yeah. find, a. There was enough motorcycling in that position and then dealing with people. And this will bridge into what I'm doing right now. It was just great to help people have a great experience with motorcycling. Right. And that was the, like the core of what kept you there because it was crazy, crazy hard work. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. And then when you left there, you opened up this spot? Well, so back up to my garage in Echo Park, um, you know, and then I'd have friends come over and wrench in my garage because I had some tools. Right. Plus, it was fun. One car garage, though. Two guys in a one car garage and two bikes is pretty tight. Yeah. Yeah. No, no air conditioning, a couple of beers, uh, warm beers. Warm beers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cigarette butts in them. So I, I, I had the idea 15, 20 years ago. I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had a place, and I, I considered it a co op at the time, where we could all just share our tools, have a couple of lifts, maybe sell some parts. Uh, and just kind of build a community around that because we weren't thinking making money. Right. We just wanted a safe place to work. I mean, uh, before I even had a garage, I would work on the street in Echo Park and I'd have my apartment three floors up. So when you wanted to take a whiz, you had to pack up all your, all your tools, tools, drag them up, take a whiz, and then drag all your tools down <laughs> to continue work, you yeah. know? And uh, that's how much I liked working on bikes that I would do that. And, you know, 
LA is great for weather, but it's not great for garages. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's uh, most people are in apartments. You're l- so lucky if you have a garage. Uh, but uh, it, no one had a place to work. So we, we were all working out in the street, changing our oil out in the street, putting new forks on out in the street, swapping engines out in the street. You know, that's crazy. Madness. Yeah. Well, it'd be great if we had a place to do that. And at the time, I thought, I thought I had picked out a building, you know, fantasy style. I think I like that building, you know, in, in Echo Park. And, but there's just no way with insurance, you couldn't insure anything like that. There's no way there. And there, at the time there was no way there was no way. What, what, what paved the way to being able to insure a business like this is uh maker spaces. The, do you know what, a, you're familiar with maker spaces? No, no, please. Oh, so make, maker spaces are, uh, and they're usually very large operations, but they are picture of a giant warehouse and it's full of like, Let's say welders, sewing machines, 3D printers. Um, so like a shared office space, but in a warehouse. Yeah, well, woodworking tools and uh, just uh, anything you can kind of think of um, that you would pay a membership to go to, and then you could learn how to use a, a lathe, or you could weld there, or you could learn to work on a car there, or you could do sculpture there. That's so awesome. Yeah. So, I mean... So you, you pick up a skill and you build it and you build a community. Oh yeah. And it's just great. Cause you don't have to, I mean, who wouldn't want to learn how to use the CNC lathe, but you only have like one or two uses a year for it. Right. So you want to, you want to rent that sucker. You don't want to, yeah, of course you don't yeah. want to spend five grand, 10 grand, whatever they cost or 50,000 or, or 5 million yeah, or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. So these places, uh, I wasn't paying attention to it, but that, that had been going on in the, in the late 2000s, and that movement, they found a way to get insurance. These are big businesses, too. I mean, to buy a million-dollar lathe and just let people use it. These yeah. are There was big money behind it. Um, and, uh, by the way, I've never been to Makerspace. I've only heard of them, and I know that they're insured. Right. And that's why I, I looked after. I said, well, maybe now's the time to do it. After I left Eagle Rider, I did it for nine years, uh, worked my ass off, and I kind of decided if I'm going to work my ass off, I think I'd like to do it for me. But but how how did, how did you do it? Did you get investors? Did you have the money saved up? Oh, God. Did you get a loan? I took an entire year off, and I would do things like I would sit in my back porch, and I would get a notepad out, and then say, what's my perfect day? What would I like to do? You did this daily or, or like once I a week? I would do this as kind of as much as possible. I was brainstorming. I knew that I wanted to do something. Uh, hey, I looked into opening a gelato place. I looked into coffee shops. I looked into starting a brewery. I, I looked into a lot of different things. Yeah. And I thought, well, what do I like to do? What would be my perfect work day? What's your dream? Like, I can't believe I get paid for this. And some of the things on that list were, I like to help people learn things. I like to teach and I like to do good in the world. I know it sounds corny. No, it doesn't. But teaching someone how to do something on their motorcycle that they've been scared to do is awesome. Absolutely. I mean, to take them from a place of I'm afraid to touch it to be like, oh, this isn't so bad. Yeah, I and can and do now, this. I, now I can maybe do other things. You know? Uh, so that was, you know, one of the big things was like, okay, I like helping people. What else do I like? I like motorcycles. I probably wrote that down 400 times. Yeah. You know, I like motorcycles. Wouldn't it be great to be having motorcycles and building custom motorcycles and that sort of thing? And, 
And, and again, I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to have something scalable, meaning that uh, I didn't want to open just one coffee shop. I would, I would want to have several coffee shops. I want something that, that, uh, that has some legs. You know, I don't want to just invent a job for myself. I want to, you know, I want a business that will keep paying dividends and because I want to provide for my family right. um, and I want to have an awesome retirement. Um, and so I was looking for something, hey, what, you know, what's, what's franchisable? What, what, you know, I also had to pay attention to startup costs because I'm, I, no investors, no investors. I've done this completely by myself. And that's why it's, uh, on one respect, it's slow growth, but on the other side, uh, it's yours. Yeah, it's mine. Yeah. And, uh, there may be a time where I'll take on investors. I mean, that's, I'm finding out, I mean, opening your own business is a huge education and I'm finding out that there's a reason people take on partners, not awesome reasons, but there's a reason. And the reason is, is more money to put in the business to grow. It's easier. It's easier. It's not, it's not, I, I strongly disagree with getting a partner if you can avoid it. Oh, absolutely. There's complications and everything else. But when you look at the short term, it's like, okay, there's a little bit more money. It's easier. Yeah. Uh, they're pushing me. I'm pushing them. You know, it's, it's like, it's like, yeah. you know, you want to jump off a bridge, you know, if your friend does it, you know, then you'll do it, whatever the case yeah. is. And that's how it feels. But obviously the business gets complicated yeah. and the partnerships get yeah. complicated and partnerships for the most part are, are very low. Success rate. I got a good buddy, and he says partnerships are great. Uh, the only thing is they work in only odd numbers, and three is too many. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And three is too many. That's yeah. right. <laughs> only in odd numbers. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so you did it by yourself. You saved the money. You, you, you made this plan idea. You were writing every day what, what would be the best, and you came to the conclusion of? Yeah, that I kind of came up with the idea. Once I discovered, and I said, okay, don't let your dark side of your brain tell you what you can't do. Right. Because you can come up with an idea and there's a thousand more ideas in the back of your brain telling you why you can't do it. Right. Um, and so I said, we're going to ignore that part of the brain and we're going to investigate because I bet you can do it. You can kind of do anything. Isn't it funny that your, your brain is your worst enemy? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, a big, a big part of this was, have you ever, uh, I, wrote, I read a book called, I think it's called Do the Work. Have you, it's a little pamphlet book. No, no, I It's spectacular. It. I don't even know the author. I should, but it do is, the work. It, it is uh, available on Amazon. It's like eight bucks. It is a book written for writers who are suffering from writer block. And, but it's applicable to anything you want to do. Finding the love of your life, starting a business, writing a book, getting a job. And it's all about slaying your inner, in your inner dragons, which is every morning you got to decide Hey, what am I going to do? Am I going to let my brain tell me no about everything? Or am I going to ignore it and just start putting in the work to what I want to do? Yeah. Yeah. And it was hugely, uh, it was great to think like to turn the switch to say, oh man, there's something in evolution in your brain telling you you can't do things. It's keeping you safe. It's keeping you safe. Yeah. The, 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 the book that I just finished was uh, the David Goggins, mm -hmm. You Can't Hurt Me. Oh, okay. I don't and, even know. And he just talks about, you know, that, you know, your brain is your, your worst enemy. And it's, it's looking for that friend to say, like, let's not do that. Let's not work out. Let's not exercise. Let's not mm -hmm. start a business. This is comfortable. This is safe. I, you know, I like this. And, and he, we got it pretty good here. We, we got it pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> why, why even take the chance? But you know, it's back to that simple shit of, you know, you got to show up, you got to just do it. You know, you got to, and then anyways, in his book, he talks about how he finds 
he doesn't feel comfortable unless if he finds uncomfort. When mm-hmm. there's uncomfort, when there's pain, when there's, you know, because he's a lot into fitness, then he's okay with that. Like, yeah. But if he if he's lazy, you know, or acting like a little bitch, like he says, <laughs> he, he doesn't play that, you know. Like, do I sleep one more hour? Do I work out? Get up, you little bitch. Just fucking <laughs> get up, you know, get it done. But you know, it, uh, the way I look at it is there may be, you may not even realize when you embark on something like this how much work it's going to be. And thank God you don't know because you might not do it. Right. Right. And doesn't matter what it ends up being, if you pick away at it every day, you are eventually going to get something concrete done. Um, and it's right. true with everything I do here. I come up with an idea. I'm going to add a new service. Let me go through the steps to add it. It'll take me seven months to get it going. That's because there's so much work involved with maintaining what we're doing. And it's more difficult than I thought, but you just pick away at it and you pick away at it and you pick away at it. And eventually it gets done. Yeah. And that's how doers do. Yeah. And, and, and another, another statistic, most businesses fail because they don't stay open long enough. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll open up, it'll be six months, eight months. Fuck, this is so hard. And maybe a year, 14 months, they'll, they'll finish. But they don't understand that if you stay, it's usually, I think they said like two years. I don't know who they are, but yeah. I think they said it's about like 18 months to two years before your business actually launches and people understand like, oh shit, it is a real business. Well, you have to have some, uh, yeah, you have to be around for a little bit. People don't want to invest emotionally right, in a new business if it's not going to be there. And, and a lot of people that start businesses, that's that's the first thing they kind of tap in because they're, they're overwhelmed and it's difficult. It's oh. very difficult, but you, you got to understand it's like, it's like those miners that would just dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And now they're like two feet away, but they don't know they're two feet away. Yeah. You, and you like, never know. Fuck it. You know, I'm just going to sell this mountain. They sell the mountain and this other guy comes in, digs two feet and fucking gold mine. Yeah. You know, and th- that's just, <laughs> I mean, this has happened a million times. Yeah. You know, uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. You, uh, I, not golden road brewing. Who is it? Uh, who's the downtown brewery? It's, uh, the IPA a- one angel, angel city. Angel City? I'm, I don't think I'm familiar with it. Oh, okay. The silver cans with the stickers? Oh, they have the, I think it's uh, it's Angel City Brewing. Okay. And uh, it was bought by, um, they're huge. They're downtown. They have this wonderful s- facility where they're brewing in an old manufacturing b- building, and they have a beer garden. This is my dream, like, beer establishment, you know. Um, and uh, they, bought a brew- they, bought, they bought this brewery. Angel City from someone who tried to start a brewery in Los Angeles probably 15 or 20 years. He was building it for like 15 or 20 years, and the city stopped him at every every inch. Oh, you need to move this pipe. Oh, you're going to need drainage here. You know, basically, Los Angeles does not want you to start a business here. Everything. Not at all. They, they do not, by policy, they do not want you to start a business here. You'd be nuts to do so because there's so much red tape. Well, he finally gave up after a long, long fight, and then enough money came in. Uh, I think it was um, Samuel Adams uh, bought that brewery and had enough money to push through, and it was just like you said, the other two feet, just new enthusiasm, push it through, big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another one, um, we, we did a lot of case studies at Pepperdine, Yeah, was uh, Starbucks, where, you know, the guy, the guy had 10 Starbucks, you know, coffee shops and he was just doing coffee. So he hired a consulting firm and they're like, Hey, how can we push through this, you know, push through this. 
And after doing research, they said, um, put an espresso machine, get an espresso machine on each coffee shop, you know, blah, 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 uh-huh. made a whole business plan. And uh, the guy said, no, I'm cool with, with Starbucks. I like Starbucks. You know, I like just having my regular roasted coffee. Well, the guy goes, if you ever decide to sell, he asked him, would you sell? Oh. He goes, no. He goes, oh, no, I wouldn't sell. He goes, well, if you ever decide to sell, I'd be interested to buy it. Yeah. Two years later. Oh, no. He sells. And then... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Shorts or short? What's his name? The guy who owns it now. Yeah. What did he do? He put espresso machines. Yeah. And now Starbucks. Yep. We all have a Starbucks card in our wallet. All of them, even a digital one. <laughs> so then you you put this place together, and 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 again, I kept I keep telling you how beautiful this place is. People should come by. You put this place together. How did you start off? Because now it looks like. You're, you're, you're selling bikes, you're renting space. You're, I mean, let's, let's talk yeah, about... Yeah, I like to wet my beak in a lot of different parts of the motorcycle industry, but that's not... It started really, uh, really small. Yeah. So, um, you know, once I decided what I wanted to do, I spent months on on a business plan and, and researching. It all ended up being useless, as all business plans are, because you don't right. know shit until you do it. Right. But uh, it makes you think about things, which is important. Um, so one of the... Most important things is location. And I had just moved to Eagle Rock. And those of you who don't know where Eagle Rock is, I don't blame you. It's a sleepy little community uh, that is just north of Echo Park and Highland Park. So there's hip, there's hip, and then there's kind of lame, and maybe soon will be hip. And that's where my shop is. So I moved here. And uh, the first day I moved in this neighborhood, I saw an automotive shop. And maybe it's the East Coast New Yorker in me, but it's brick. And it has the uh, it has the um, reinforcement for the uh, earthquake retrofitting, which I'm used to seeing on the East Coast. Yeah. And it had bars on the windows and a single garage door. And I said that would be a good place for a motorcycle shop. And uh, within a year, I had the place. And the way I got the place was, I saw that the business was moving out of it. There was no for rent signs whatsoever. So I just wrote a letter. I wrote like six letters and I squeezed them under every door to the place, the garage door, the front door, the back door. That's awesome. Um, and so I hadn't even gone on the market yet. And I found, I, I met with the guy and he said, it's not even on the market yet. I've got a few years left in my lease. I bought my own building. I want to give it to the right person. You're the first person I'm talking to. And we just clicked and he said, I like what you're doing. I like what you're doing and I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to rent it to you. So I ended up with, and I would never in my wildest dreams, I mean, this sounds silly, but to have a motorcycle shop where there's walking traffic, they're all walking to Chipotle and Jamba Juice, but I don't care. They're actually walking by the shop. Most people have to start in a mediocre location or a crummy right. in, one in, in, in an industrial center or a bunch next to a bunch of warehouses no traffic whatsoever no visibility and you have to attract people there yeah first thing i saw when i turned here was like oh starbucks okay oh yeah this- it's it's safe <laughs> I can continue. at the very least i can get a high-priced piece of coffee yes yes uh so uh i got really lucked out about the location and then the second thing and i mean and this just goes for like don't let things stop you Go for what you want, because you wouldn't think that he would split the rent with me. But he decided, he says, I want to keep, it's 4,000 square feet. I want to keep 2,000 for myself, and you can rent. I'll sublet you the other 2,000. So he kept his auto business in one side, and I took just one side of the building, so 2,000 square feet. Uh, Totally reasonable rent. 
his lease was signed uh, seven years ago at this point or 10 years ago at this point. So I was at retail rates of the 2000s instead of, instead of current yeah. rental rates. Yeah. And um, the other thing is when I grew enough, I didn't have to move. I just said, you want to move out and I'll take over that side of the building. And he says, yes. So I can double immediately double without moving my business. So now we're 4,000 plus square feet. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great to grow. Also scary. Yeah. Yeah. But, but now, but you, you, you also grew, uh, because you duplicated what you were doing in the business, but you also brought in different uh, offerings to what you offer. Well, clients. yeah. So what happened to me is, and, and I talk about the business plan so, being a fictional and a joke, right? Is that I changed my business plan within two weeks of opening this place. So what, 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 so, okay. So we, we have your shop location, 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 but what the fuck were you doing? What, what are you doing here? How did you open up? Was it a mechanic shop? Was it a custom shop? Was it a clothing shop? Was it motorcycle sales? What, what was the, the well, here, it, break that down. It was the business plan was community moto garage. Okay. So we call them CMGs for short. There's about 40 of us across the country all trying to figure out how to make this work because the idea is awesome. There's no one except maybe an insurance agent who would, who would not think that this idea is awesome. You have tools. There'll be other people working on bikes. I don't have to work on the ground. Someone's going to be there to tell me I'm going to really screw it up or not. It's just awesome. The idea is awesome. The community is awesome. That was the idea. That's what I wanted to create. I wanted to help people. I wanted to rent lifts. I wanted to. So I, I can come here. I could bring my motorcycle. I could bring parts and wrench here. Well, I don't even have to bring my own tools. Correct. We have everything here. The lighting's good. The building is safe. There's someone who, when you need that second hand to hold a wrench on the other side of your axle, or lift an engine in, there's someone who's glad to help you because we're all geeks. We're all motorcycle geeks. We love nice. that someone's in here wrenching, right. you know, and doing their own thing. That's what you can do here. Now, the idea behind the business was the subscription model, though. Right. Okay. So there's a, cho there's a shop in San Francisco. Um, they're, uh, they've changed their name. Moto Guild, I think they're currently called. Are you aware of these guys? No? no. Okay. So they're the same concept in San Francisco. They've been doing it maybe three or four years than I, I have. So they're kind of pioneers. And I went and visited their shop to check it out and see how they're running. And the owners were awesome. Um, and they have a sub subscription model, which is everybody pays a certain amount per month to be part of this club to get access right. to the building. And so it's like a gym. I mean, in, in all honesty, I can't have a hundred by hundred motorcycles being worked on at once, but it's like a gym. You hope that everybody, well, maybe not everybody will show up and right. you know, you're still getting membership and then the place will be full. Uh, uh, lost my train of thought, but, uh, it's right. The membership subscription plan versus at that point you were doing hourly, right? Well, yeah. Like, uh, there's, you know, there's a limit on how much you can charge for something like this. And at the time, the industry limit was $15 an hour to rent a lift with some tools. Right. Well, let me tell you, insurance for the first year was $14,000 for the year for liability to let people wrench on their own bikes. Wow. You're not paying that back with $15 an hour. Not at all. No. So am I in it to make money? Yes. But at the very least, we need to cover costs. Yeah. You know, and so the idea is, wouldn't it be great to have 200 members paying 100 bucks a month for time here and they all share the shop. Hey, maybe then we can 
do that, you know? Right. And this is what was working in San Francisco. But as I found out, San Francisco is a different city. They don't have parking. Uh, they don't have parking. And that's the biggest thing. People needed a place to store their motorcycle. So they did a lot of storage. Yeah. You know? Um, that's cool. That's a good business model. Yeah. For them, that works. there's no parking in San Francisco. No, there's zero. There's like negative parking. Right. Yeah. So what I found out really quickly was that model will not work here. Everybody came in the shop within the first three months and said, this is an awesome, awesome idea. I can't believe this is awesome. And then I never saw them again because I found out that what people want is they think it's a great idea, but they don't always need it. So they're going to use it when they need it. So you're not going to get a membership of something if you only envision yourself using it once or twice a year. Right. Yeah. So then uh, it just wasn't working. Everybody thought it was a great, great opportunity, but I couldn't get any more than 10 or 20 members a month in the first year or so who wanted to pay for it monthly. Right. You know? And so that just wasn't working covering costs. Uh, and then I, th I said, I said, well, okay, geez, I got to do something else. It's not, it's not working. And um, so I said, well, let me get a technician. We're going to be the Jiffy Lube of motorcycles. We're going to do just the simple stuff. I'll stock air filters, oil filters, and oil. And we'll just do oil changes, air filter changes, the simplest stuff. Right. right. So I got a technician. I got really lucky and I got someone who moved from the Pacific Northwest and he was like a jack of all trades, jack of all trades. And uh, he helped me launch the service side and I learned within a week, uh, this sucks. The uh, changing oil, you make like 60 bucks and it takes an hour and I got to stock all this stuff. And then it's taking up too much space. Yeah. Well, you're actually giving away a lot of work, meaning that these things that I decided to do, Jiffy Loop type activities on motorcycles, they're hard work, and uh, they're they're hard they're hard work. You have to stock stuff, and you only make it a limited amount of money. So, uh, plus, you know, you would see, okay, oh my gosh, the bike has no front brakes. What are you going to do? Let someone go down the street with no brakes? So now you're right. now it you needs tires. Yeah, and you want to provide all these things, but of course they require you to stock it. Right. Right? And so it just exploded from there. And and uh so I realized, oh, I need a full service department where we're really gonna where we're really gonna be able to work on people's bikes. Um, start stocking parts. Cause it's you know, as a business, it's a total shame when like, okay, you can sell them a widget, but then they said, Hey, do you have the other widget that goes with it? And you tell them, No, I don't have that. Yeah. I mean it's a total lost opportunity. So it's great to change someone's oil, but then to find out they need a tire and front brake pads and to have to let them go and go to another business to get that fulfilled. Yeah, it says you're it, losing money. Oh, it was painful. Well, you're it was giving lost. away money. It's a, it's a lost opportunity. Right. Right. And I'm trying to stay in business. This is new. I'm in here six months. The rent scares me, you know. <laughs> you, you, the first of the month, yes. Oh, oh, yeah. And, you know, let's talk about, like, startup money. The uh, big joke for me is... Uh, Startup money is exactly that. It starts you up. In one year, you need the exact same amount or more to continue. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, you need continuing money. Yeah, <laughs> and you continually need it. Right. Yeah, otherwise you're just going to burn up your resources and you're stuck. Right. You're stuck with it. You can't assume you're going to be profitable in your first year if you are. Not at all. God bless you. Yeah. I didn't. I wasn't able to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. So uh, 
it just evolved because of need. Hey, I need to pay my rent. Hey, this is an opportunity. Uh, and even though DIY, what, what DIY became for me in the end was public service. I'm not going to make a huge amount of money from DIY. Uh, thankfully, the insurance has gone down greatly. Uh, it's now a third of what it was when I started the business. Uh, so I can afford to keep it around. It has a smaller footprint in my shop. Now, it was 100% of my shop when I started. And then when I moved to the service model, it was 50%. And now it's 25% of the, of the square footage in the shop. Right. And my other businesses, service, parts, apparel, sales, they help pay for the public access to the DIY. Why do I still do the DIY? Because it's middle, And there's nothing more exciting than coming in here on a Saturday and seeing, like, including the mechanics, there'll be like nine people working on bikes here. I have, uh, uh, I guess, seven lifts, and they'll all be full on a Saturday, and people are going from lift to lift, helping each other work on their bike. That's beautiful. Oh, it's it's. It's that's beautiful because if you think about it, you know, some dealers, you know, they, they don't even want clients to be where the mechanics are at. Oh, no, know? they don't have insurance for it. They don't have insurance for it. They, they don't, they, you know, you're dealing with a, a gatekeeper telling you how much it's going to cost to fix your bike, what's wrong with your bike, but you don't, you don't even get to see it. And, and the fact that you, you offer this service that not only you're going to have people explaining it, but you get to work on your own bike and learn how to fix it. It's so fucking awesome. Yeah, so what I have is it's an open shop. I have insurance to let anybody walk anywhere. Now, I'm always, I'm huge on safety. But the point is, it's like, even on the service side, I introduce the client to their mechanic. Yeah. I'll say, hey, this is, uh, this is my guy. He's going to be work, He's, he's going to be servicing your bike. Is there anything you want to talk to him about? Yeah. You know, and you never get to meet the guy who's servicing your bike. He's a faceless dude in the back that you, where you can't walk yeah. and you have no input and you just pay what they told you you need to pay and that's it. But here you get to meet your mechanic. You get to see behind the curtain. Hey, and a lot of times we will invite people back. We'll say, Hey, we need to look at this cause we found some interesting stuff. Uh, the, some of it we can deal with and some of it you're going to want to keep an eye on, you know? Right. And that's great. And, uh, Everybody wants to know someone in the motor, motorcycle industry. You want to know someone in this industry. And at my shop, you do. So you know the owner. Everybody knows me. I meet every customer who comes through here for DIY or, or service. And they know all my staff by first name. We know all their first names. It's, it's a much better social atmosphere for motorcycling. It's just awesome. I, I, I really like it. I really like it because there's a bunch of people that want to buy a motorcycle or work on their motorcycle or do something with their motorcycle, but they're afraid of asking. Um, other, other people are too fucking busy. Maybe you do know a mechanic and it's like, fuck, can you make it to my house or can I go over your house? Can you work on my bike? And they're going to be like, well, you know, I can't. But the fact that you have a, a pinpoint of where people can come and, and do this and the access of information, the access of tools, the access of lifts, the access of convenience of community that you've created is, is fucking outstanding. Yeah. It's uh, you know, one of the things we get all the time is I've always wanted to ask this, but I've been afraid to ask, right, man, you walk into a, a, a stuffy motorcycle dealership. You feel like an idiot. If you want to ask a question of how do you lock your bike at night? Right. Uh, I don't know if I'm low on oil. How do I find out if I'm low on oil? 
this is ridiculous. I mean, if you didn't have your dad to teach you this stuff, someone's got to tell you this. There's no reason to keep this stuff secret, and it shouldn't. you shouldn't feel like a knucklehead to ask these basic questions just because you don't know. Because yeah. no one pulls you aside. There's no... There's really there's no course except you, hard knocks. It's it's funny because it, it seems like it seems like the agenda for these big companies, you know, like I'm, I'm going to switch it to cars real quick. Okay. Before you can open up the hood of a car and see the whole motor and oil and check this, check that, check that. But now all these cars are covered with these plastics. Where oh, you there's can't nothing even, to look at. There's nothing to look at other than a pretty plastic mold, and that's it. And well, you have no idea. And and the manual tells you like, don't <laughs> just service the fucking thing. Don't touch it. You know, which is it's it's fucked up. This is the difference between cars and motorcycles. Yeah, cars you now have nothing to do with. You may like the way it looks and like driving it, but you really have nothing to do with the mechanics of it. Right. You're not meant to. They don't want you to. You maybe couldn't if you tried because everything's, although it's still an internal combustion engine, it's so complicated that you're not going to. Yeah, there's so not, much electrical now that. Computers still. Computers, yeah. Yeah. But it's not even worth touching it. It's, and. But wrenching on your bike, you know, like that's, that's kind of like people's dreams sometimes. It's just wrenching on a bike with a bunch of other people and, and, and share knowledge. Well, listen. Motorcycling isn't just about riding the motorcycle. Yeah, it's the best part. It's the best part. But a big part of motorcycle ownership is having to something to do with the maintenance and or customization of your motorcycle. The pride of saying, I worked on it. I kind of know what's going on down there. It's safe and it's getting me down the road and I'm a little unique. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's servicing it and customizing it. Yeah, that's the fun things about owning a motorcycle, and and I, I've I've said this a million times, you can grab you know one Ducati Monster, and as a dealership, you could sell twenty of these. By the end of six months, they're all going to look different. Yeah, they're all going to have different features, different seats, different lights, different tires, different rims, different paint. Somebody's different fenders, fairings, etc. People are going to change it and customize it, and that's what's beautiful about motorcycles. You make it your own. Yeah, and you, I mean, you really feel a sense of pride. Right. Uh, Especially when you it. do it yourself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Boy, will you pay through the nose if you're paying a dealership to do this stuff. You know what? You've been doing this long enough. Let's say let's say I have a, a Dyna, mm-hmm. right? And how much, besides the knowledge and the community and the experience and the benefit of bringing it here that you offer, how much statistically would you say you save, you know, working on, working on your own bike here versus going to, you know, HD or Ducati or Monster, whatever the bike is. Well, I would say, in all honesty, some people can save money by doing it DIY. Most people will spend more their first time learning DIY. You'll spend more. Yeah. Uh, if it's, if you, especially if you factor in your time. So let me give you an example. Please. I have probably taught 200 people over the last five years, how to use our tire, tire machine. So we do a course, it's called a tire certification course. And it's a private lesson, it's 45 bucks. And I teach you how to use our pneumatic tire machine. Um, and it's a big scary machine, although it really isn't. But, it's, but if you don't know what you're doing, it's a big scary machine. And everybody hates paying for tire changes. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it's a big deal. Like, hey, you wanna learn how to use a forklift? 
Hell yeah, I want to use that a forklift. Yeah, you know, forty five bucks, I'll do it. So I, I probably I'm gonna do it. By the way, I want to sign up for it. Oh, that sounds great. Do you have a forklift? Because I've never ridden a forklift. <laughs> no, I don't. I really want to learn how to use a forklift. Yeah, I got a forklift lifter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, no, no, I know, no, I don't. Yeah, worry. I would just love to do that. Anyway, uh, life goals. Uh, I probably taught over two hundred people how to change their tires. And what we do is we change, we teach the machine. So wheels off the bike. Uh, we don't teach you how to take it off the bike. Every bike's different. Right. You know, you, you got to have some, you, you have to come here. We're helpful, but we expect you to know what you're doing. Do your research, watch YouTube, read your owner's manual. The tools are here. There's a second hand, but we're not doing the work for you. You're doing the work. Where's the satisfaction in that? So we will teach just the tire machine. And uh, what people will ask me is how long will it take to change my tires? Well, I'll tell them, okay, we're going to do the course. It's going to take like an hour. I'm going to have you change like eight tires. And the reason In I'm, one hour. Yeah. Well, the first one takes you 20 minutes. Right. And then the next one takes you five. And then the rest of them take you two minutes apiece. Very Because cool. you're, 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 you're figuring it out. And you provide the, the rim and tires? Yeah, I have a tire that we've changed uh, like a, a thousand, thousand times. <laughs> yeah. It's made of peanut butter at this point, so yeah, it's very yeah. pliable. But it lets you learn the, the ins and outs, like the steps. The machine's not difficult. Changing a tire is not difficult. It's there's twelve steps, and they have to be done in the right, right order and with the right finesse. So you learn on a baby tire, a Nerf tire, my first tire change, play, play school, and then you you battle your own tire. Which and I tell them that battle will be epic, your first one. So they'll say, how how long does it take to change a tire, and or two tires? It's always the two tires, and uh, so I tell them, well, a mechanic does it an hour and a half. Knuckleheads like you and me. That would be three hours. First time, four hours to a whole day. Really? So I'm sorry you haven't done it before. It, it's going to take, first time doing anything, it's going to take you time. Yeah. Yeah. So no, are you saving money that day? No. But the next time, it's going to take you four hours. And then the next time, it's going to take you three hours. And the next time, it's going to take you two and a half hours. Yeah. And, if, and if you're enjoying it, if you're enjoying it, then it's worth doing. Right. You know, uh, on the other hand, if you decide this is for suckers, we can change your tire. It's 60 bucks. It'll take a half hour. Yeah. You know, and you guys just change it out. Yeah. I mean, but you have a choice here and, uh, that's great. I loved learning the tire machine. I was so scared of it. I would walk around at my other shop. I didn't want to get near it. I thought I could take a, take an arm off, you know, but, uh, it's actually now I'm, really good friends with it. Oh, okay. We so do all sorts of things I, 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 I together. Really, I, I really want to learn this. And let's say uh, people that are listening want to learn this. How do you, how do you go about taking the class? You well, call so and make it, a reservation? Yeah, you call and make a reservation. So it would be like a private lesson okay. with me or one of my staff and just plan on an hour being there and, and sweating a little bit. So, nice. yeah, and it's just uh, everybody's super frustrated at the beginning. Yeah. Like I said, the first change takes a half hour or 20 minutes. And, and then they, you just get better. And the more you do it, better and better and better. That's awesome. And it's super satisfying, you know, learning how to use a... I'm sure. And then the sound, pop, pop, Oh, yeah, you know, all that stuff. And pushing it out. Like, oh. Like, it, I, I, I'm, yeah. And then I always go, I always tell them, you know, it's tire certification. And I'll say, well, I'll shake their hand. You're certified. Now you just got to do this 90 more times and you'll be fat. You'll be good at it. You'll be a pro. And then I also say, you know, I also say, now you should, you know, go around to biker joints and be like, nice bike. You still change your own tire? You, you yeah. don't... You don't change your own tires? You don't change your own tires? Oh, guys, you, st oh. You, you still let me 
Other people touch your bike? What? All right, I guess. Yeah. Do, do other people touch your... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's pride in doing this. I mean, uh, right. and this is not just a male thing. This is a motorcyclist thing. We have plenty of, of female riders here, and I teach as many of them as the tire machine as, as, as the males. You know, everybody, this is part of motorcycle. Whatever's wired in your brain that says, I like two wheels, uh, no weather protection, and speed, uh, you know, it's something in their brain, and we all like we all like the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing how uh, um, everybody in this shop, and I make a I make I make it a hangout place because I don't want people to leave, and I want people to hang out, and I like the community. But everybody sits on a couch next to somebody, and then starts up a fifteen minute conversation. There's no we all know a little bit about each other already, so it's super comfortable. Yeah. You know, I know what you're here for. You're probably here for something that I might have been here for or I might be here for now, you know, and then you can talk about it. And uh, COVID's messed that up a little bit. I have like two waiting areas now so people can be separated. Separated, yeah. Yeah, but um, even with social distancing, uh, it's such a communal place. Is there anything you don't allow to be worked on or everything's open? No, everything's... Bars, exhaust, tires, motor work... Yeah, well, uh, no, it's, it's, we expect you to know what you're doing. We don't want you to get in over your head, although we have ways to help you if you're in over your head. We want you safe. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the answer would, I don't allow stupid shit. And if I, if I feel like you're going to be in your own danger or endangering somebody else, I'm going to kill it. Yeah. Um, I can't have bikes falling over. I can't have uh, knucklehead mistakes. So it takes up a, a, a fair amount of monitoring. Yeah, you're and, a professional business. You're insured, and and, and you got to be cautious, you know, for the safety of your employees and the guests that are here. Yeah, but I, I would say so. I'm in my fifth. We just we're starting our sixth year. I haven't had a single person injured or a single bad event. No, it's going to continue because we watch them, and I think we create an atmosphere where it's like, hey, if you're not sure about something, I want you to grab somebody because I want you safe. And, you know, no one wants to cause damage to their bike. So I, uh, everybody's had the great, I've been very surprised about the good attitude. There, there's very few people who, it seems to be people are cautious, uh, yeah. like uh, the right amount of cautious. Well, not only that, but they're working on their own bike. So they uh, want to fuck that up. Yeah, you know? I know it's going to cost them. But what, like, fuck this lift and fuck these tools. I don't want my bike to fuck up. Listen, this, this is whatever, whatever keeps bet. it safe, I'm, I'm, I'm happy because we don't want anybody hurt. We only want good times. And that's what we've been able to maintain here, which is just, it's, which is just awesome. No, it's interesting because even when I was talking about Chris McIntyre, when he got into the whole rental system, he was like the insurance company and the finance institutes, they, they don't want to fund or they don't want to do anything because they're afraid because they're motorcycles and they're going to fuck them up. But the crazy part is, is people end up taking care of those motorcycles better than somebody that owns a motorcycle. Correct. And, and same thing. You look at it, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, it crossed my mind. I go, fuck, man, you're letting just random people work on their own bikes. That's scary. But the fact that they're working on their own bike, they're going to baby that. And, and they're going to treat the bike and the business and the opportunity like it's their own property. Oh, well. And, I, and we're kind of in that right now where we're in a global economy that everybody's sharing everything anyways, like Ubers, Toros. And now you're the Uber of motorcycles. Oh, please not. Please not. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Yeah, I wish for their success, but not. I don't want to be the Uber of motorcycles or the Jiffy Loop. So or the Jiffy Loop. I, I've yeah. tossed both of those business models. So uh, DIY, it's just an awesome part of the business that helps make it unique. It's something for me to talk about and market. It also brings in customers. It also, since it's such a great idea, um, and it's so safe and so well equipped, it's good for word of mouth. So I may have DIY customers coming in once or twice a year but they're talking about the place and then all of a sudden I'm getting someone, I need to tune up their bike or they're here for DIY or they know, okay, Jeff has oil and oil filters for all my bikes. So it just helps the business grow. It's a cornerstone of the business. It will never go away. It will never lead financially in the business, but it is what makes this place unique. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you. It's really outstanding because if you think about you know, some Harley shops, you know, they'll try to create a, a customer loyalty program or in a sense by, you know, cook, you know, cooking hot dogs once a month. Yeah. You know, and, and the fact that you're offering knowledge, experience, uh, professionalism, uh, tools, a lift is for me at this point, it's, a, it's almost unheard of. Well, dude, if I knew somebody that had it. It's as simple as high fives, too. Yeah. I mean, when someone does something for the first time, you know. Uh, the first chain in sprockets, whatever, we'll high five that guy. I mean, oh, we know it's a, you know, they were nervous going in and they did it. It yeah. took them a long time, but they did it. I mean, holy crap. Yeah. They were so scared of doing about these it, things. Yeah. Oh, it's a total accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and it's challenging oneself and comfort levels. I mean, it's, it's a great motto. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just great to have like, we're surrogate buddies for everybody. Meaning that like even the mechanics. So, you know, Part of the problem with my business is not my problem with my business. One of the challenges, I have to find professional mechanics who still like people and motorcycling, yeah. which is absolutely rare. But I have some of the best mechanics in, in L.A., the most highly skilled, highly trained, most often self-trained. Um, so they have a lot of knowledge in a lot of different areas, which I really like because we don't service just one type of bike here. We service a lot of different bikes. So they're not specialists. They're generalists. Um, but they still ride motorcycles, which is completely rare for a motorcycle mechanic. Yeah. And they like to talk to people. That's odd. Yeah. Which is even more rare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Usually mechanics a, like to work on their own, put on their headphones and just yeah, yeah, knock yeah, it yeah. out. Yeah. Curmudgeon comes to mind. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, have, I have the place staffed with friendly people. So, again, you're going to know your mechanic. You are going to sit at the same table and maybe have a Chipotle burrito with that mechanic or the owner of the shop or the parts guy, it's, it's, uh, it's real. It's a real place. It's like a bar for motorcycles. I wish, well, I hope I can find a way to serve alcohol with motorcycles. That would be great. Yeah. The ultimate. Well, well now you need the, the espresso machine. Oh, you know, that's, that's coming. <laughs> and then, uh, just to finish up here, uh, I see a lot of gear. You have a lot of cool gear. You have motorcycles. What do you, what do you sell? I, I, you told me before we started, you now sell motorcycles. What kind of motorcycles do you sell? And uh, what kind of gear do you have? I mean, I see it, but how would you explain well, so it to the listeners? The, the evolution of the business was DIY, DIY in service. And then I, I needed to keep adding things to create income, another income stream and value, and also keep give other reasons for people to be here. So I added apparel a few years ago, and the apparel business is tough. Yeah, isn't? Well, you prepay for everything. 
So you're going to buy $10,000 of jackets. As, as a retailer. Yeah, you prepay for everything, and then you own that stuff in general. Right. And if it doesn't sell, or you know, what's more likely is medium and large sell, and then an extra large sell, and then you have a double XL and a 3X and an extra small, and then they, Fuck, yeah. then they stop making that jacket, and then you have to buy more jackets. Than, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tough business. So I write, so no consignment or anything like that. No, I mean, I, I, I've certainly opened to that. Uh, I ask people all the time when I like to have local businesses, lo- local manufacturers, their stuff in here, for example. So I'm the only outlet that I know of in LA for tobacco motorwear. That, and, and, and I love the post. I love their, their, I seen it online. I've never seen a store have it. Yeah. It looks really nice. Yeah. So they make great stuff. It's all made here in LA. They're local. When I need something that I don't have in stock, I can get it the next day. It's awesome. They're just like me. They're, they're trying to do something awesome and they're small and disorganized and organized at the same time. And they're great. Um, and again, it's another case of like, Hey, it's on the internet, but I can't really see it. Yeah. So, uh, they're a great brand and I have them here, all their stuff. Uh, we'll be getting more in, in the fall cause they're branching out into different things. Um, and then, uh, I'm a dealer for Revit as well, as well as uh, showy, uh, a showy helmets, bell helmets. And, um, I'm constantly bringing in more Revit is a great company. I'm so happy. I looked into them and I sell their gear and they are really supportive of the dealers. So they will let me uh, return gear and credit it toward new gear. So if something's not selling, they'll let me pull it out and let's try something else. That's awesome. Yeah. They want to see you succeed. They don't want to just bury you with a bunch of stuff that yeah, you'll get that, stuck with. Yeah. That I'm, you put it exactly right. So they're, they're into growing their business and the yeah. way you do that is support them. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I started apparel a few years ago and that's a slowly moving beast. So, uh, cause if people don't know you're selling apparel, uh, then they're not going to look for you. They're not going to know to look for it. So right. it's a lot about telling people. And um, as everything grew, service grew, took the other side of the building and uh, apparel. And I resisted motorcycle sales for five years. And the reason is, is because I've done motorcycle sales and it's been pretty hardcore sales. <laughs> right. Um, I stood in line in other dealerships. I stood in line with, in the, at the bank with people to get their deposits out. Yeah, I would. In, I was instructed to insult them and degrade them into buying the motorcycle right now instead of thinking about it. Jeez. Yeah, and uh, so I worked for some pretty hardcore sales outfits, and I was sick to my stomach the whole time, and I resisted doing it here. I recently realized, well, I don't have to run it that way. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to run it that way. I got a little more bandwidth. Let me. Uh, I got our dealership license last year. It's taken me six months to implement it. And I started with consignment sales and the genius of consignment is I'm not paying for the inventory right. and I get a small commission for selling it. And the benefit to selling a bike here, cause I've already built in worth in this place. People trust it and they trust me. The bikes are all looked at and they're, they're all, I, I call them, uh, uh, I, I call them, they're, they're, you know, they're ready to hit the road. Right. You know. So they go through a safety inspection. Yeah. I call it fully vetted, you know, fully vetted. Yeah. And you guys like certify it. So that's, well, that's, that's an extra step, a benefit of, of somebody bringing their bike for you to sell it here because you guys are going to vet it. Correct. And the other thing that's is, awesome. the other thing is, uh, I'm familiar with out of state sales as well. So you're going to broaden your, your, uh, your, your 
your purchase, your, your selling power, who your audience who you can sell to through selling through me, there's trust. And then I deal with all the, all the shipping and all that jazz and half the bikes I sell go out of state. I'm so surprised. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It may, it may make sense. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. Cause I tell people a lot, like, um, I forgot what you were saying about, Oh, when you were buying used bikes, I was going to make this point. Yeah. When you were buying used bikes and you got to a dollar a CC. Yeah. You know, I was going to say buying bikes in California, there's, there's little risk compared to the east coast where oh, right. you have hurricanes and the rust and the snow and it, it just rots through the bikes yeah and it's very difficult because you might buy a bike that was just in a flood and you have no idea so buying buying bikes and working on them and fixing them from california is awesome and i think same oh, thing for the, yeah motorcycles and cars people like buying cars from the, the yeah, west you're coast right. more because they're they're in better condition overall yeah yeah i shipped a triumph tiger to connecticut and i was kind of like why are you shipping a Triumph Tiger to Connecticut? Because we're drowning in them here in LA. Yeah. So I've got to realize this is LA. Yeah. You know, and they didn't sell that many over there. And if you're looking for a used Triumph Tiger, there's the place that has it is LA. So you offer, you, so you do the consignment. Yeah. So you help out with the, the shipping, the transportation, yeah. the sales. Uh, what about the financing? Do you offer okay. financing? I offer, I'm starting to offer financing. I have one financing company that will grow. Um, what I don't want to be is I, I don't want to be a place that puts kids in debt for motorcycles. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I have to feel good about every transaction that happens here. And, uh, you know, to that effect, the way I do sales is the prices on the bike. Uh, we've gone over it. It's safe. I can, we can talk all you want about it. Um, but I price them fairly and, uh, They've been gone through. So uh, either you're interested in it or, 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 or you're not, because I'd love to sell it to you. Yeah. But, but um, I price them at where I think is fair. I really do. And, uh, um, and that's an, I, try to, I try to make it easy. And, and uh, that's, the only way, that's the only way I could do sales. I'm not in it. It's yeah, not the, yeah. you're, it's you're not not the core of my it. business. Yeah. It's like icing on top. Yeah, you're not going to get a four square and hassle people for their down oh, payment. Oh, so you know about that. You, you must have done this as well, yeah. yeah I've, I've Once or twice. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> gosh, the stuff they had me do. Yeah. Um, throw, throw the trade-in keys on the roof. <laughs> you know, I do think that, uh, you know, uh, I think that everybody should have a hardcore sales position at some point in their life for like six yeah. months yeah. because life is sales. Life, life is sales. I, I think I think the stuff they should teach is you, you should get a sales job once in life. You should learn about how to manage your credit because many people don't know how oh, to manage Oh, no one knows credit. how to do that, yeah. You know, and I think that's important. And then I think finances, you know, people need to know how to control and manage their finances. And, you know, money comes in, money gets saved, money, you know, like th that. those are the basic things we need to learn. Yeah. And, and that's the stuff they don't teach. Well, and again, to the salesman thing is, uh, no matter how horrible the position is or what you're taught, there is some goodness, life goodness in working sales. Yeah. Because a job interview is a sales pitch. Absolutely. Everything Rel is sales. Relationships are a sales pitch. Dating's a sales pitch. Everything's a sales pitch. Everything. Yeah. And there are honest, good, honest techniques that get your point across in short amounts of time or cut to the chase that are absolutely useful in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of what I learned, I'm never going to do, but Hey, that's a great thing to learn that I don't want to do this and yeah. I don't want to do it this way, but I know it could be done to me this way. That's right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're more alert and, and aware. Yeah. 
So what what kind of bikes when when I again I'm looking at them but for yeah. the sake of the listeners what what kind of bikes have gone through here for sales well, let that me people just, can look forward to Let me just say what I do there's no bike snobs here which is great because most places are bike snobs especially with the type of bikes that I work with I've chosen to focus on European bikes so metric and European bikes those of kind of sporting in nature yeah. um, so on the service side, we service Moto Guzzi, KTM, Triumph, Ducati, Aprilia, oh, so many others. All, of course, Yamaha, Honda, Kawasaki, and Suzuki, of course. And I tend to, I want to stock bikes that works well with my customer base. So that's what I'm doing. It's mostly European bikes, metric bikes, low miles, good condition. Uh, so... It's I amazing how many bikes actually have low mileage. I love California. So <laughs> many rich douchebags yeah. buying bikes and never riding them and then finally selling them. You can buy a 16-year-old bike with 1,200 miles. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that you see a lot is, um, is how much free shit or cheap shit you find on Craigslist. Oh, yeah. People just move here and they're like, I'm going to make it out in L.A. And then a year later, they're like, fuck, they're selling yeah. everything. You're like... You know, if you have a pickup or something, it's 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 ridiculous the stuff that you can pick up. Yeah. But for motorcycles, you're right. You can find a ten year old motorcycle with a thousand miles. Yeah. Fifteen hundred, yeah. three thousand, nothing. Yeah, I think we had like a two thousand six R one in here with twenty two hundred miles. And every time I was the, my posting for this bike was, someone please take this bike out of its misery and ride it. Yeah. It, this is horrible. It's like an orphan. How long did it take uh, to sell that one? Oh, it sold pretty quickly. A lot of interest in it, but you know, everybody. The right. reaction was the same thing. How many miles? Somebody ride this thing. I mean, this is a crime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they, there's so many. Yeah, there's, there's so many bikes like bikes like that. There's so many. So, parts, tobacco, motorcycles. What What's the future? What's the future look like for uh, for you guys in five years from now? Yeah, five years from now, much bigger location. Doing, leave this location or, or get a secondary? I, and, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm just a knucklehead or what, but I already need more space yeah. uh, to do more things. So I think it's going to be where it's leaning for me is, and I, we have to watch where the world goes. I mean, with COVID, yeah. I, it's, hard to, it's hard to make plans for the future. I still, I still do. I'm going to be here for, in this building. I have another potentially, like I have another four years on a lease and another five that I could take. Yeah. So I can be here for a while, but I can see advantages of getting more space. Right. So um, it's going to move. It's going to move to closer to what motorcycling should be for me. Everything under one roof. Community. Keep the community vibe. Just provide better and better services. Have a reason for people to hang out here, not just spend money. And that's going to include. There's probably going to be coffee. You know, I'm going to have more and more gear here more and more uh events i mean we already do monthly rides and we'll do we'll do like what i call field trips like we'll do uh uh either socal supermoto or we'll do track days and we'll do it as a shop i'll close the shop everybody goes including the mechanics and the parts people and then we invite customers along because this is That's something awesome. like it's part of motorcycling you're so scared to do these things and then to yeah. think that you're going to do it alone but to know five people there it's just awesome. I don't make any money from doing this. This is just promoting motorcycling and motorcycle culture and expanding everybody's horizons. And I'm, I'm just jealous of all the California guys who have been doing this since they're six years old. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's that, so cool. That's what the future is going to hold. 
I, I hope to, I'm really in the belly of the beast right now. I'm, I do everything at this business. Um, and I want to hand over the reins to competent people who care as much as I do and develop new directions for the business. I would like to have another shop. I would like to have three shops in Southern California. I think Long Beach would be an awesome place for a business like this. Long Beach has, has, has grown really nice. Oh, like, it's a great city. Compared to 20 years yeah. ago or whatever the case is. And of course, Santa Monica could, could use this business as well. Yeah. But something crazy would have to happen to yeah. be able to start a business in, in, in Santa Monica. So I'm looking at other places. Yeah. But the, the goal well, is to have... It costs so much and, and, and the neighborhood has just gone to shit, you know, with, with so many homeless and tents and it's, it's crazy right now. Santa Monica and Venice is just absurd right now. But. Oh, well, it's crazy, but I can't count. I can't... Uh, Worry about I, I, I can't worry about that. I just have to keep moving forward and doing what I want to do. And I guess the end goal would be have a couple shops that are serving the community, making money, and people having fun doing it. Yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah, and if, if I can get that, that's going to be magical. It's about the experience. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the number one thing that every business should focus on is create some kind of experience, and that's what people are going to memorize that's what people are gonna that's that's where you create value and that's where you can sell shit and make money in business yeah they're gonna buy it anyway yeah why not everybody have a good time selling it and or buying it yeah and uh, knowing the first name of the person you're dealing with absolutely yeah so that's the goal well jeff I, again congratulations the place looks great i love the bikes i love the gear i love what you've done uh very very smart very brave now you gotta just come here and wrench now i gotta come here and wrench and um where, where can we find you what's the website what's the instagram it's, what's the address it's motorepublic.com we have a great website a lot of information's up there we have a blog section where i where i go through diy common diy tasks um our instagram is moto.republic.losangeles and we're very active on Instagram. That's where you're going to find out about a lot of things. If you're not hip to Instagram, get on my mailing list. It's on the front page of my website. And uh, twice a month, I won't spam you, I do a mailer. The mailer includes, hey, what rides we have coming up, what events we have coming up, what classes we have coming up. So it's just good motorcycling culture. That's awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. All right, and uh, we'll do this again. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening uh, to all the followers, subscribers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please share, share, share. Um, check out our Instagram at Ride Boundless. Make sure you um, follow us there for post updates. Uh, I'm going to have more content out for you guys, and we're going to have more exciting things that I've been working on. Um, and, and please rate, review, and if any concerns, any questions, or any suggestions for guests, reach out to me via Instagram. That's probably the best way. Once again, thank you. Ride safe, ride hard, ride boundless.